Antichrist has been the boogeyman for those who follow the ways of the new God for generations. Religious zealots have been waiting for him to show up for centuries, expecting him to begin wreaking the havoc that would eventually destroy the world. And there have been those who have actively sought him out, and some who would do anything to destroy him. Like a woman named Rhoda Wakeman, a prophet and religious leader of the 19th century. In fact, on the morning of December 24, 1855, Rhoda killed a man who was possessed by the Antichrist in New Haven, Connecticut. The man was a member of her own sect, and he participated in his own execution, during which he was bound and beaten with a stick, had his throat cut, and was stabbed, all to prevent the Antichrist's malignant spirit from infecting Mrs. Wakeman. It's a story of murder, prophecy, religious mania, and a death-crazed belief that the end of the world was coming soon. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our new season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. We have a long road ahead of us this season, traveling to America's forests, farms, and fields with tales of witchcraft and hexes, cults and curses, calamities and cannibalism, massacres and mysterious disappearances, and more magic, mayhem, sinners, and spirits than we've ever offered before. In this episode, we'll take a walk on the dark side of American history that, thankfully, most aren't even aware exists. As I've said before, America, throughout its relatively short history, has been a nation of extremes. It should be no surprise that our homegrown religious faiths can also be described in the same way. Extreme. As you're just about to find out, just keep in mind, listener discretion is always advised. In 1844, a man named William Miller convinced at least 100,000 people that the world was coming to an end. He didn't make it up. In fact, he spent more than 14 years combing through the Bible using a mathematical code that he'd devised to reveal the date when God's chosen people would be swept up into the sky. For years leading up to his end date, he traveled the back roads of New England from one small church to another, spreading the word about the end of times. He began to gain a serious audience as one of the wandering religious speakers of the day. In 1838, he converted a Boston minister who spread the word further in a series of pamphlets. It was a turbulent time in American history, a time when the counterculture of the country was starting to falter because their reforms had gone nowhere. Women still didn't have the right to vote, saloons, breweries, and distilleries were still serving and making liquor, and two of the central causes of the time the struggles against slavery and war were on a collision course with each other. People of the era were quick to embrace an ideology that told them their God was going to clean up the mess they'd made, and really soon. Well, then a financial depression hit in the early 1840s, followed by several astronomical events like a huge meteorite shower and Halley's Comet, and this served to only heighten the need for deliverance to many Miller's radical predictions made it all clear. The end of the world was coming. 
Well, the excitement continued to build as Miller's calendar ticked off the dates. The second coming would occur sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. More than 100,000 followers, along with another million or more that had attended his lectures about the prophecies, kept a watchful eye toward the predicted date with general fear. Millerites took joy in the impending doomsday and considered those who scoffed to be damned to hell. They alone, they were convinced, would be saved. Bad news, though. March 1844 came and went, and nothing happened. Well, critics and scoffers had a field day. Miller pointed out that his calculations allowed Jesus a little wigger room and urged Millerite believers to stand fast in the certainty that they could expect the end of the world uh, soon. More math followed, and Miller's new calculations pointed to an exact date for the second coming, October 22nd, 1844. Well, Millerites were thrilled. And during the week leading up to that date, many thousands of Millerites across the country gave up all but the most necessary work and devoted themselves day and night to prayer and Bible study, preparing to meet God. Many sold their possessions and gave away their money to church officials, as it was recommended to meet Judgment Day debt-free. In cities and small towns across the country, droves of followers donned white robes and gathered on hilltops with their arms outstretched. Stories spread that Millerites ran amok, engaging in free love and throwing all their money into the wind, anticipating a world without wants or demands. Others were said to take the words from the scriptures that claim none will enter the kingdom of God unless childlike, so literally that adults began to regress, skipping and hopping around while others sucked their thumbs or stayed in bed in a fetal position. And then October 22nd also came and went. When the sun rose on an unredeemed world the next morning, the Millerite movement imploded. The fiasco became known as the Great Disappointment, and most of Miller's followers went back to their old churches or went on to other new religious movements. But the failure of Jesus to appear at the predicted time did not, as you might imagine, mean the end of Miller's cult. Miller believed until the day he died five years later that it was all just a math error and that the second coming was still going to take place on some imminent but undetermined date. The Great Disappointment delivered a crushing blow to the American apocalyptic movement, but it certainly didn't kill it off. It remained alive during the 19th century and even endures today, as William Miller's crackpot theories have managed to infiltrate the doctrines of even the most seemingly ordinary churches in this country. He literally made up the idea of his followers being scooped up into the sky to avoid the end of the world to scare them, and this is still a big part of the mainstream church philosophies today. Even though the Bible specifically states that, quote, no man knows the day or hour of Christ's return, if churchgoers can be convinced it's going to happen at any time, well, they're always going to be in the pews on Sunday, right? But how did the rantings of a fringe nut like William Miller cause your neighborhood church to start teaching, more or less, the same ideas that you'll find at a local cult meeting? Well, blame it on John Nelson Darby, a minister who took Miller's ideas about the coming apocalypse and gave them another twist. 
His main innovation was an ingenious response to the trap that caught Miller. The insistence that the entire history of the world, from Christ's crucifixion to the second coming, had to be predicted by the Bible. The rest of it was all history, but the book of Revelation, though, that was all prophecy. Except it wasn't even intended to be. The book of Revelation was actually written in code as a set of warnings to Christians about the Roman Emperor Nero. He was hunting Christians down at the time the letter was written, and John's imagery was attempting to form a clandestine communication. But Darby's idea was to set all the events in John's vision in the future and expected them all to be treated in the most literal terms. Yeah, dragons, monsters with several heads, sheeps with dozens of eyes, all of it, literally. But that's not even the most important part. His idea dodged the bullet of setting any dates for it and allowed preachers to claim that the end was breathing down all our necks. This was a major innovation, but it wasn't the only one. The second innovation turned out to be equally central to the success of Darby's new apocalyptic theology, the rapture. The whole thing is based on a single ambiguous verse in the New Testament. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which reads, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, the doctrine of the rapture, which is taught literally in most churches in America, states that when the events of the book of Revelation start to happen, all true Christians will suddenly vanish, body and soul, to meet Christ in the sky, while everyone else on earth will be left to suffer the horrors that John of Patmos predicted for the world in the last days. Well, it was a brilliant idea, the notion of having a ticket to heaven, while everyone else gets to suffer seven years of torment, and that proved just as popular as the Millerite dreams of the skies opening up to reveal Christ to the world. By the middle 19th century, this new idea had begun to fill the gap left open by the great disappointment and allowed evangelical preachers with plenty of ammunition for scaring the bejesus out of their congregations. But it didn't take off at first. Most of the people who would consider an idea that was outside the mainstream had bitter memories of the Miller debacle, so Darby's followers stayed on the fringes of the Christian world for years, finding most of their converts among the poor and disenfranchised. At a time of soaring optimism that had been nicknamed the Gilded Age, most people didn't want to hear about an imminent second coming. But that began to change in the early years of the 20th century, when power struggles between European empires finally exploded in the summer of 1914 and became the First World War. By that time, Miller's debacle had faded from America's collective memory, and those who embraced Darby's warmed-over version of it found that the temper of the times was shifting in their favor. Marketing campaigns that borrowed heavily from media advertising methods of the time enabled the apocalyptic message to spread far and wide. A group of devout oil barons funded a series of pamphlets about this new message called The Fundamentals, and they were distributed by the millions across America, and the movement had found its name. By the early 1920s, fundamentalism was a rising force in American religion and culture, and it started to form relationships with other groups on the conservative end of society, like the Ku Klux Klan, which became the fundamentalist church's best ally. 
The Klan had revived in 1915 as a vehicle for racist and anti-immigration activism. It quickly gained a following in the South, the Midwest, and the West Coast. In the early 1920s, when the new Klan was at its height, some 40,000 fundamentalist ministers were proud Klansmen. However, an alliance with the Klan turned into a liability for fundamental churches when the Klan all but collapsed in a series of scandals in the late 1920s. The Great Depression also hurt the fundamentalist movement, as conservative economic policies that were backed by fundamentalist ministers failed to do anything for the economic troubles of the time other than make them worse. It ended up taking 40 years in the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s to breathe new life into the surviving fundamentalist churches and give them a new platform for their apocalyptic nightmares. Perhaps the greatest of these fundamentalist nightmares was the idea of the Antichrist, the sinister figure that would rule over the world after the Second Coming. Much like the rapture, the lore of which was created from a single verse in the Bible, the Antichrist seems to be more legend than anything allegedly coming from God. The word Antichrist appears in just three passages in the Bible, in the New Testament letters known as 1 and 2 John. It doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation, even though that's what most fundamentalists have linked the idea most closely with. They believe the Antichrist is central to the apocalyptic worldview that sees human history as a struggle between God and Satan for the fate of humanity. Here's how it works in fundamentalist prophecy. Just before the second coming, the Antichrist will act as Satan's chief agent on earth. The Antichrist is sort of evil twin of Jesus, I guess, will forge a one world government through promises of peace. But when Jesus returns, he will expose the Antichrist as an imposter, defeat him in the Battle of Armageddon, and reign with the Christian martyrs for 1,000 years on earth. Now, most of what we know today about the Antichrist is a mixture of fundamentalist legend, popular culture, movies like The Omen, and writings that date back to 950 CE. It does not, does not come from the Bible. According to the early writings, the Antichrist would be a Jew, because anti-Semitism dates back a long way, unfortunately, and he would be conceived in the usual way, rather than some diabolical equivalent of the virgin birth. His mother would be the wickedest woman in history, possessed by demons before, during, and after the Antichrist's birth. He would grow up proud, wealthy, and famous, and would become a leader, instructing people to revel in sin and vice and to turn away from God. His career would be filled with bribery and corruption, and he would rise to the top in both the material and political worlds. As his power increased, his opponents would be tortured and killed until he had absolute power over the world, until Jesus returned, of course. There is nothing in the lore suggesting he would be born from a jackal, could be killed by magic daggers, or would be the ambassador to England. That's all just a movie. And even though there's no mention of the number 666 appearing on his head anywhere, the number did make an appearance in the book of Revelation. Some scholars have suggested that the Antichrist would gain control of the world economy by forcing each person, quote, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name, 666. As far as most fundamentalists are concerned, the beast and the Antichrist are the same thing. 
The idea that this Christian boogeyman was going to make an appearance in the end time has been around for hundreds of years by the dawn of the 20th century, but never before had it seemed such a clear and present danger. For many years, most fundamentalists believed that the Antichrist was none other than the Pope. They've also picked John F. Kennedy, Adolf Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mussolini, Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, thanks to the birthmark on his head that was obviously hiding the 666, Saddam Hussein, and Justin Bieber. Okay, I made that last one up, but you get the idea. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, all those guys are dead and nothing happened, well, that's part of the issue. It's kind of like predicting the end of the world. Almost every political figure selected as a potential antichrist by prophecy writers in the 20th century ended their career with an embarrassing incident of one kind or another, or they died. Still, these failures were balanced in the years after World War II by two events that seemed to suggest that the prophecies in an apocalypse were being fulfilled. The first was the atomic bomb that fell on Hiroshima. A great many people not otherwise looking for signs of the end of the world couldn't find many other ways to make sense of weapons that were almost literally apocalyptic in their effects. American prophecy writers were quick to jump on the atomic bandwagon, revising their predictions of global war and the coming of the Antichrist to include mushroom clouds. All during the Cold War, it became nearly an article of faith among fundamentalists that the end times would involve a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Well, the second event to give the apocalypse its post-World War II kick in the butt was the founding of the modern state of Israel in 1947. To most would-be prophets, the return of the Jews to the Holy Land had long been one of the most important signs of the imminent Armageddon. The establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine seemed to be both a stunning confirmation of an old prediction and a signal that the end times were near. Most people don't like to talk about the fact that all through the first half of the 20th century, fundamentalist churches played a huge role in setting the stage for Israel's founding, advocating for Jewish settlement in Palestine and pressing the British and American governments to support the project. Well, this would lead the uninformed or the naive to believe that they did this out of their concern for the Jewish people. But that's not even close to the truth. The majority of fundamentalists are viciously anti-Semitic. Their goal, even today, is simply to push forward their prophecies and bring about the end of the world. Now, you might think I'm exaggerating here, but I promise you, I'm not. Put this on pause and go take a look at what the evangelical agenda is for Israel. You'll see I'm telling the truth. In order to fulfill their prophecies, the fundamentalists need the Jews of Israel to either be slaughtered in mass by the Antichrist or to convert to Christianity when Christ makes a reappearance. Now, I don't think either of those things was what the founders of Israel had in mind for their people, but that's exactly what the fundamentalists expect to happen. As the 20th century drew closer to its end, these trends and many others helped spark a second wave of American fundamentalism that was nearly identical to the one that rose and fell in the 1920s. The same mass marketing techniques that helped drive the first wave of fundamentalism using new technology created a new generation of tele-evangelists and fundamental political causes. When Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, fundamentalist leaders found themselves welcome in Washington, D.C., thanks to the fact that their grassroots kind of church networking had garnered a lot of votes for Republican candidates. 
Now, this newfound political power, though, did nothing to soften the fundamentalist message that we were living in the end times and that the Antichrist was going to show up at any time. The Church of the Reagan years fell out of favor for a while, only to have a resurgence during the years of the Obama presidency, when the racism of the 1920s began to rear its ugly head again. The new fundamentalists even renewed their links with white nationalist groups who weren't nearly as overt as the Klan, but just as dangerous, and found acceptance again during some of the most turbulent years in American politics. The more things change, as they say, the more they stay the same. Let's just hope that it's not in every way. At the beginning of this episode, I introduced you briefly to Rhoda Wakeman, the woman who killed the Antichrist. She'd been born Rhoda Sly on November 6, 1786 in Fairfield, Connecticut. She was the first of four children fathered by Phineas Sly and his unnamed wife. Sly later married Eunice Baker, who gave birth to Rhoda's half-brother, Samuel, in 1803. At age four, Samuel suffered a serious head injury that left him with brain damage, and he never recovered. Around 1800, Rhoda married a distiller named Ira Wakeman, and they eventually had several children together, ranging from nine to as many as 15. No one really knows for sure. Either way, it's a lot. We also don't know much about Rhoda's early religious beliefs, though she reportedly attended Methodist meetings and read the Bible and Milton's Paradise Lost, which were pretty common at the time. In 1825, Ira threatened to kill her for the first time, and the prospect of death provoked some kind of crisis in Rhoda, who claimed that she prayed fervently until Jesus himself appeared to her. He showed her the sufferings of the saints and martyrs, she said. I guess as a way of telling her she really didn't have it that bad. Well, the vision marked the beginning of what Rhoda called her, quote, seven years of travail, when she believed that her husband might murder her at any time. According to her daughter, Selena, her fears were well-founded. Ira was a heavy drinker who became angry at even the mention of Rhoda, quote, getting religion, as he called it. He once told Rhoda that if he caught her praying or reading the Bible, he would kill her on the spot. He often took a straight razor to bed with him just in case he felt the urge to cut his wife's throat in the middle of the night. Ira's treatment of her left Rhoda partially deranged, a doctor would later call it. He eventually set a date for her death and told her that he had made a league with the devil to die, but first he had to dispatch his wife. After that, he knew he would be executed on the gallows. On the day of the scheduled murder, he lit a small fire, put two chairs in front of it, and told Rhoda to prepare for death. She sat down in one chair with her husband facing her in the other and expected to feel the blade of the razor against her throat. Instead, Wakeman took a length of burning wood from the fire and thrust it into her heart. She said, quote, it was the last I knew of this world. Rhoda later claimed that she found herself surrounded by 1,000 little black spirits that were preparing to take her away when a white spirit appeared and chased away the black imps. The white spirit carried Rhoda thousands of miles away to a place of bright white clouds where she had a series of visions of Christ 
angels in white robes and a blinding image of heaven. Then the spirit returned her to earth where she saw her dead body lying on the floor. After two angels spoke to her kindly, she returned to her body and was revived. Iris shouted three times, by God, she's raised. That was the story of the event that Rhoda gave that created her beliefs and her doctrines, although its accuracy has been called into question, and I know you're not shocked by that. According to other sources, Ira didn't actually stab his wife with a flaming piece of wood. Instead, he gave her a brutal beating that left her unconscious. But whatever happened, Rhoda accepted the event as a revelation upon which she would found her cult of followers. Some of her new beliefs were ordinary, while others were decidedly not. She professed a belief in the literal truth of the Bible, as well as the belief that God was the supreme ruler and that Christ came into the world to save man from his sins. After that, things got a little, um, let's say odd. It should come as no surprise with the husband that she had, Rhoda decided it should be illegal to get married. <laughs> because all marriages were the consequence of worldly lust. She also believed that she was a messenger sent by God to redeem the world from sin. She would tell her followers that the devil had power over death and whenever he chose, a sinner could die. But Rhoda also believed that God had given her the power to forgive sins so that she could save those who were marked for death. She also believed that God had given her the power to destroy the entire world if she chose to do so bringing on the apocalypse. God had, she claimed, also given her the power to know the thoughts of other people merely by looking into their eyes. And if anyone didn't believe she could do all these things, the devil would place an evil spirit upon them, marking them for an early death. Now, one of Rhoda's most important doctrines was gleaned from the writings of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians in which he wrote, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Rhoda came to believe that the man of sin was the Antichrist, but that he was not a living person. Rather, he was an evil spirit that moved from one person to another so that he could kill none other than Rhoda herself. If she died, she later told her followers, humanity would be damned and the world would be destroyed. She believed that her husband had been revealed as a vessel for the Antichrist when he'd attempted to kill her. However, angels had made Rhoda immune from earthly dangers and his plot had been temporarily foiled. She wasn't pressing her luck though and left home to live with a daughter. Soon after she began her ministry preaching door to door, but she wasn't going to wait to get her revenge on old Ira. She paid a call on him one day, bringing several of her followers with her. They grabbed Ira and tied him up. Rhoda drew a knife and began cutting and stabbing him. Not that he didn't deserve it, but she did some real damage. Before she could kill him though, one of her followers got nervous and ended the attack. Ira Wakeman didn't die from the wounds he suffered that day, but they certainly sped along the end of his life. He died on March 8th, 1833. But the death of Ira Wakeman would not keep Rhoda out of the deadly clutches of the Antichrist. Over the next few years, events occurred that would shape the future of Rhoda's cult. On July 3rd, 1836, two of her future followers, Justice Matthews and Mayatab Sanford were married. Later that same year, another disciple, Massachusetts school teacher Thankful Hersey, started a school for children. 
She closed it, though, in 1842 when the devoted Millerite decided to abandon everything and wait for Christ's return. At some point after the Great Disappointment, she met Rhoda and traded one nutty cult for another. Samuel Sly, Rhoda's brain-damaged half-brother, became Rhoda's most devoted follower. She drew him in by simply interpreting passages from the Bible in the way that she wanted him to understand them. And in that, hey, she was a groundbreaker because that's a common idea these days. But Samuel accepted everything she told him without question. One jarring new fact that she introduced him to was the power of the Antichrist that had been transferred from Ira Wakeman to another man, Eben Gould. Now, this man's identity is never really clear, nor do we know by Rhoda believed him to be possessed. Her daughter, Sarah, was married to a man named Alden Gould, and Eben may have been his father or his brother, but no one knows for sure. All we know is that Samuel embraced Rhoda's creed with great enthusiasm, preaching to anyone who would listen to him and dropping to his knees to pray anywhere, anytime he felt the urge. Now, before his conversion, Samuel had been regarded in the neighborhood as a very good, harmless, prayerful man, though he acted and spoke like a child. He often worked as a farmhand, but would neither slaughter livestock nor step on an insect and seems to have been regarded with the exasperation reserved for children and harmless eccentrics. But that changed once he embraced his sister's beliefs. He became less friendly and very suspicious, refusing to walk past the homes of people he believed had the devil's power. He began to believe that his neighbors were plotting to kill him, so he was quick to agree to leave home and preach his sister's gospel across Connecticut. And what a gospel it was, spread by a woman that many believed was a lunatic. Her daughters believed that Iris' cruelty had left their mother unhinged, and they may have been right. She was certainly odd. She wept at the sight of people walking to churches that believed it was God who had the power over death, not the devil. Spirits appeared to her in the night, begging her to preach. Evil enchanters were everywhere, plotting against her. All of Rhoda's relationships followed a distinct pattern. She held people in high regard until they did or said something that was critical of her. That exposed them as wizards, possessed by an evil spirit, or it meant they were the Antichrist. A perfect example of this is her treatment of Ephraim Lane, husband of Rhoda's daughter, Carolyn. In 1852, he told her that her beliefs were nothing more than a delusion, and Rhoda immediately announced that Ephraim had a bad spirit that wanted to kill the good spirit in her. He was denounced, and so was Carolyn, which undoubtedly had the two looking over their shoulders when any of Rhoda's creepier followers were around. In 1854, Rhoda also communicated Charles Willoughby, another of her son-in-laws. Charles had been accused of causing winter storms and conjuring up demons to torment Samuel Sly. When his wife expressed doubts about this, she was also accused of trying to kill her mother. But brother Samuel, he remained true. Eventually, he was able to save enough money that he could free Rhoda from what she called the hard bondage of weaving, which is how she'd been supporting herself. And he moved her into a series of rented houses in New Haven where they could hold regular meetings. The meetings were soon attracting farmers from the surrounding area, as well as workers from the various firearms factories in town. Which I mean, guns and these people doesn't seem like a great mix. Rhoda's followers met every Sunday and then again during the week. Samuel later described the meetings as prayer and singing by the faithful believers. And then my sister would select quotations from the Bible and explain them. 
And then the Spirit of the Almighty would descend on her and she would reveal to us the sayings of the deity. So yeah, God was speaking through Rhoda. Fail to believe that at your own risk. In 1845, two important events occurred in the happenings of Rhoda's cult. First, Maya Tob Matthews' nephew, Charles Sanford, was released from the Hartford Retreat for the Insane. He began attending services and soon prayer meetings were being held for him, presumably to cure the insanity that hadn't been cured by his state at the asylum. Yikes. Secondly, a 17-year-old named Amos Hunt joined the sect. By 1850, Rhoda and Samuel were living in a small house on Asham Street near Yale University. They supported themselves by taking care of children, again, yikes, and selling fruits, berries, and syrups and herbal medicines. The medicines, probably best described as snake oils, proved popular, and Rhoda gained a reputation as a healer, mostly from the working poor and the farmers in the area, like a man named Sperry, who would go on to play an unfortunate role in Wakemanite history. She gave away almost as much medicine as she sold. Over the next few years, Rhoda and her followers were quiet about their work. Young Amos Hunt came to hold an honored position among them. He attended every gathering and induced many people to attend meetings and listen to the wisdom that Rhoda had to share. But of course, as Rhoda could tell you, demons are notorious for harassing the devout. In late November 1855, Amos and his wife attended a Sunday service and brought food with them to share, a pie and seven small cakes all were carried in a tin pail. Samuel put the items on the kitchen table and when they all sat down to a potluck dinner, Rhoda ate a piece of the pie and one of the cakes and became violently ill. She was convinced the food was poisoned, especially after Samuel and another follower also became sick. Rhoda spent two days in agony before visiting Dr. E.C. Chamberlain, who had been treating her for six years and considered her insane. She had only started seeing Dr. Chamberlain after she learned that her previous physician was a wizard. Anyway, Samuel reportedly took the uneaten pie to Dr. Benjamin Stillman at Yale, a renowned chemist who apparently made himself available to local nutcases. Anyway, according to Rhoda, Stillman found enough poison in each cake to kill 10 men, or he might have if Rhoda had not gone ahead and announced his findings before he even reached them. The truth, she said, had been revealed to her by God. The cake and pie provided by the hunts contained no ordinary poison, because Rhoda was, of course, immune to common poisons like arsenic. These items contained a magical poison, she said, made from the brains of a man, the oil of men's bones, eyes of dogs, eyes of roosters, garden basil, topaz, stone, copper, zinc, platinum, and the entrails of common toads. Or it just could have been a simple case of E. coli since everyone who ate it got sick. Well, in the end, it didn't matter. Even Gold, the last Antichrist, had died. So Amos Hunt was a prime candidate to become the new arch enemy of Rhoda Wakeman. It was obvious to her that Hunt had made a league with the devil and to him was given all the power that was ever on the earth for sin. Of course, this sounds crazy now, but Rhoda's followers took this seriously, and Amos knew he had been marked for death. Hoping to save his life, he offered Rhoda and her followers a cash settlement of $500. And then, naturally, the Antichrist left Amos Hunt and went seeking a new man of sin to inhabit, and now chose someone else. 
In December of 1855, Rhoda and Samuel were living in a small story and a half house on Beaver Street in New Haven that was crowded with cult members. And it was here that she announced the name of the man that was now inhabited by the spirit of the Antichrist, Wakemanite Justice Matthews. Now he was an unremarkable man who worked in a pistol factory. He attended cult meetings with his wife, Maya Tobb, and his sister, Polly Sanford, but had little contact with Rhoda. There was no obvious reason why the evil spirit chose him, but its presence was revealed when his wife began experiencing seizures. When Rhoda also became sick, the sect became worried. In the tense atmosphere that followed the so-called attempted assassination by poison cake, this was enough to make everyone a little concerned. Now, Justice was baffled by the accusation, but cooperative. He didn't object when members of the sect first attempted to drive out the spirit by giving him gallons of tea brewed from the bark of witch hazel trees. Rhoda believed it had the power to drive off evil, but it didn't work. Then after hours of prayer, Rhoda decided on a new course of action. On December 21st, Justice began a three-day fast while Samuel cut a long branch of witch hazel and put it in the cellar of the house. On December 23rd, the Wakemanites gathered at the house for worship. Rhoda had about 15 followers at the time, and among those gathered there were thankful Hersey, Abigail Sables, and Julie Davis. Those three lived in the house with Rhoda and Samuel. Also present were Polly and Almer and Sanford, Isaiah Wooding, Betsy Keeler, and Josiah Jackson, an African-American man who worked as a porter at the train station. There was a full moon in the sky that night, and if the traditional beliefs about the full moon making people crazy are true, it might explain a lot about what happened. Justice Matthews arrived around 10 p.m. Samuel had already built a fire in the sitting room, so Justice sat down, removed his boots, and was warming his feet by the stove when the Antichrist began tormenting Rhoda. Because the gaze of the spirit was capable of causing harm, Polly Sanford blindfolded Justice and asked him if he was willing to be tied with a rope. He said that he would. If it would subdue the evil power in him, he added, he would allow it. His wrists were tied behind his back. Soon a sort of exorcism began, trying to drive the Antichrist from his body. For the next two hours, the Wakemanites alternated between the upper floor of the house and the front room, praying fervently for the devil to be driven from justice. As they stood over him, they begged him to renounce the unclean spirit. He was told that his presence was killing Rhoda and that it would be better for him to die than to have Mrs. Wakeman and, of course, the whole world die. There was a general agreement that justice would die if the spirit couldn't be driven from him, and justice agreed. He was willing to be killed if it would quench the evil spirit, he said. While the exorcism was taking place downstairs, Rhoda was upstairs acting weird. Around midnight, she said she was unable to breathe and had to lie down to keep from fainting. An hour later, she claimed to be dying from the creatures that were crawling around inside of her. One of her followers later stated, quote, she had three live creatures in her, which were crawling up her throat and choking her. I put my hand on her chest and stomach and I felt them. Samuel, Hersey and Wooding rushed downstairs and cried out, he's killing the messenger. He's killing the messenger. Samuel, knowing that the entire world was in jeopardy, if anything happened to his sister, knew he had to act. He retrieved the witch havel branch from the cellar and returned to the front room to knock the evil spirit out of him. As Justice sat bound and blindfolded, Samuel drew the curtains, locked the doors, 
and struck the helpless man with a blow to the right temple, knocking him out of his chair and onto the floor. He then hit him several more times. Then, feeling urged on by some influence, he later said, he cut Justice's throat with a small knife. There was a handle in the room that was used for lifting the stove lid, and he plunged the metal rod into Matthew's chest 12 times in the shape of a cross, apparently to release the evil spirit. Justice's brother, Almer and Sanford, heard a gurgling sound coming from the front room and began pounding on the locked door. Others held him back, though, assuring him that if Justice died, Rhoda would raise him from the dead. There was another gurgling sound, pounding noises, and then cries of pain. Unsure of what to do next, Sanford went back upstairs to pray. By 2 a.m., Rhoda felt well enough to notice strange noises coming from downstairs and told Betsy Keeler that all was not right below. Well, half hour later, Samuel unlocked the door. He went to a back room where thankful Hersey used a basin of water to wash the blood from his clothes. The sleeves of his shirt were so wet with blood, they were cut away and burned in the stove. The witch hazel stick with Justice's blood and hair still stuck to it was dropped through a hole in the outhouse out back and the knife was placed next to Justice's body so that it would look as though he killed himself. Samuel wiped up most of the blood on the floor and then went upstairs to pray. Some feared that the corpse could still harm Rhoda if left in the house, and so the Sanfords were told to move it. But after a long night of worship, prayer, and murder, the Wakemanites were exhausted and needed sleep, so Justice's body was left on the floor through the night. At some point early the next morning, Almer and Sanford left the house and returned with 19-year-old Willard Matthews, the oldest of the dead man's five children, who had been out looking for his father. Sanford, troubled by the events of the previous night, seems to have brought his nephew to the house intentionally. When he entered the silent house, Willard saw his father's body in the middle of the room, lying on its left side. Clotted hair and blood were on the floor around him and several large pools of blood were soaking into the wood near his head. His throat had been cut from ear to ear, nearly severing his head from his body. Pieces of rope were next to him on the floor and there were red marks on his wrist, making it evident that he had been tied up. And yet when he saw the horrible state of Justice's body, Willard cried out, Oh, dear father has killed himself. Oh, man. After recovering from his initial shock, he went to the house of a neighbor who summoned the Justice of the Peace. And soon the cult of Rhoda Wakeman began spiraling toward its inevitable end. Sheriff Leander Parmalee arrested everyone who'd been present in the house that night and convened a coroner's inquest. The jury heard evidence on Christmas Day, and it was on the following day that Samuel decided to confess. Holding a Bible, he told the entire story to the jurors, who decided to release everyone except Samuel, Thankful Hersey, Josiah Jackson, Abigail Sables, and Rhoda Wakeman. They went back to jail to await the grand jury. Well, the newspapers had a field day with the slain and with the strange cult. They were fanatics, it was said, and the cult suffered from the effects of the great disappointment. As for their so-called leader, Rhoda Wakeman, she was believed to be too delusional to be taken seriously as a threat. But reporters and the authorities forgot one thing. Rhoda had a remarkable aptitude for getting others to kill. And there was more blood going to be spilled by Wakemanites in the days to come.
Charles Sanford, the young man released from the insane asylum, was still out there. It was pretty tough for him to hide, too. Accounts describe him as having a protruding jaw that stuck out further than his nose. He limped heavily from a club foot, was chronically insane, and had an advanced case of tuberculosis. What bothered him most, though, were stomach pains. He suffered from massive cramps that he believed were inflicted on him by magic because, well, that's what Rhoda had told him. Two years of relative sanity ended with the violent death of his uncle, Justice Matthews. The following night, he simply snapped. On Christmas Eve, he caused a disturbance at a church in Hamden Plains, telling the minister that he'd said enough and that he needed to stop talking so that Sanford could preach the true gospel. Despite this outburst, not to mention his history as an asylum inmate, Sanford must not have seemed dangerous to the members of the church. Even when he left his parents' house with an axe on the morning of January 1st, it didn't seem out of the ordinary because he often worked as a woodcutter. But why he carried a three-foot-long hickory club sharpened at both ends and covered with undecipherable writing was a little harder to explain. Two miles from the Sanford home lived a farmer named Enoch Sperry. On the snowy morning, Enoch was on his way to a neighbor's house to pick up a borrowed sleigh box. He had hitched a pair of sled runners to his farm horse and was walking the animal along the snow-covered road. Sanford probably knew Enoch. Not only were they neighbors, but the 69-year-old farmer's health was generally good except for occasional fits and strokes of palsy that left his face partially paralyzed. To treat this issue, Enoch had visited Rhoda Wakeman for various complaints and had purchased some of her medicinal syrups. At around 11 a.m., Sanford and Enoch met by a small brook along the road. Whether this was a chance encounter or Sanford deliberately chose the isolated spot to lie in wait is unknown. A few words may have been exchanged, but what they might have been is also unknown. Instead, what we do know for sure is that Sanford struck the older man with the blunt side of the axe, first at the right temple and then just above the right ear. Enoch's skull was immediately crushed. When he fell, Sanford struck again, this time with the axe's blade, and it hit his neck just under his chin, nearly severing his head. Sanford fled the scene in one direction, and Enoch's horse went the other. It tramped to a stable at the nearby Clinton Hotel and stopped. One of Enoch's neighbors, Samuel Perkins, recognized the horses belonging to Enoch and assumed he'd had one of his fits and decided to check on him later in the day. Meanwhile, Sanford was not finished with his bloodbath. His flight through the woods led him to the farm of Ichabod Umberfield. Around 2 or 3 p.m., he entered the Umberville house, placed the axe in the club in the hall, and found the housekeeper, Lucy Deming, washing the kitchen floor. Slipping an arm around her waist, Sanford pulled Lucy into the hallway, but she turned and slapped him, and Sanford ducked away from her. He grabbed his axe and entered another room where he came face to face with Eliza Deming. The 10-year-old recognized him and locked herself into a bedroom with her mother. Thinking quickly, Eliza opened a window and called to her father outside. Charles Sanford is in the house with an axe and he is crazy. You must come in. When Umberfield entered the house, he found Sanford seated by the stove. Believing he could reason with him, he pulled up a chair and tried to engage Sanford in conversation. But Sanford refused to speak. He sat there, staring at the fire for a few minutes, then gathered his club and his axe and limped toward the door. 
When he was behind Umberfield, he stopped and swung the ax, slamming it into the other man's skull. Umberfield pitched forward onto the floor. He groaned and Sanford hit him again, splintering his skull. Lucy Deming rushed into the room just in time to see a third blow strike her employer in the neck and blood sprayed wildly in the kitchen. Eliza had also entered the room and she began to scream, which annoyed Sanford. He lunged toward her as she ran. As he followed, he screamed at her, stop your noise or you'll get your head chopped off. Finally, he gave up and went outside to clean the blood off his ax in the snow. Someone locked the door behind him and he headed back into the woods. While this was happening, Samuel Perkins was on his way to Enoch's Berry's farm. While on the road near the stream, he was startled to find his neighbor's mutilated body in a ditch. He summoned help and the body was carried to the Sperry farm, where two doctors examined the remains and sent a message to New Haven to inform the farmer's sons of his death. Well, the police and some of the neighbors began looking for his killer. Following his trail through the snow was not difficult, even though it was near dark, when Officer Lucius Doolittle and a posse of seven men armed with clubs and farm tools started in pursuit. They soon caught up with Sanford near the junction of Brooks and Downs Roads near the Umberfield house. Sanford fought like a cornered animal. He attacked all of them at once and managed to land a blow on Officer Doolittle's shoulder with the ax. A man named Peck cornered Sanford with a pitchfork and distracted him while Mr. Gorham knocked him down with a cudgel. He was hauled away to jail, finally bringing an end to that day's slaughter. Two inquests were held that evening, both of which decided that Charles Sanford had committed the murders of Enoch Ferry and Ichabod Umberfield. The motive for the crimes was unknown, but it was suggested that Sanford had heard about the murder of his uncle, Justice Matthews, and wanted to copy it. Sanford claimed he killed the men in self-defense. You see, he had a cramp in his stomach, and if he hadn't murdered the two men, the cramp would have killed him. After confessing to the murder, Sanford was put on trial, convicted of both crimes, and was sentenced to hang. However, he never did. He had, as one reporter noted, every appearance of being far gone with consumption. And six months after the murders, he died. While Charles Sanford was committing murders, God's messenger Rhoda Wakeman was in jail awaiting trial. She was sharing a cell with thankful Hersey, and though Rhoda was often sick in bed, she managed to compose a document to the ministers of the world. It cataloged all the misdeeds of the Antichrist, along with all of her suffering, and was interspersed with threats, pleas, and an explanation about how all of mankind's collective guilt was causing her problems. In other words, it was everyone else's fault she was in jail. And if she didn't get out soon, she said, the world would be doomed. In another letter, she complained about the unfaithful among her followers who lied and claimed they never would have left or forsaken her and that they should have their heads taken off before they did. This suggests that the three murders of Matthews, Sperry and Umberfield, all of whom were or nearly were decapitated, may have been inspired by some aspect of Rhoda's teachings. Who knows what might have happened next if Sanford had not been caught. On January 17th, Samuel, Thankful, and Rhoda were back in court when the grand jury returned a true bill of murder against Samuel and indicted Thankful and Rhoda as accessories. Josiah Jackson and Abigail Sables were released from prison. Rhoda wept when she learned that she had to remain behind bars. 
Thankful pointed a finger at her as she sobbed beneath heavy black veils and announced to the court that locking up Rhoda was going to doom the world. Rhoda agreed. She declared that the world would end before they were tried, but added that she would allow everyone to live a little longer, you know, if they would release her on probation. Otherwise, she would bring judgment day when she felt ready to do so. Well, she stayed in jail and surprise, the world didn't end. Three months later, they were brought to trial. A parade of witnesses appeared on the stand, laying out the details of the murder of Justice Matthews and presenting a bizarre look inside the cult of Rhoda Wakeman. Not a single doctor who was brought to the stand believed the defendants were mentally competent enough to stand trial. Even the prosecutor admitted he had no idea just how crazy the defendants were when the case got started. So when the case was finally taken to the jury, the judge instructed them to retire and quote, bring in such a verdict as they thought was right. The jury deliberated for only 10 minutes. Between Samuel's mental limitations, Thankful's fanaticism, and their utter faith in an obviously unbalanced woman, the defendants were found not guilty by reason of insanity. The prisoners were then ordered to return to jail until further orders were given by the court. The destination for Samuel and Rhoda was the Hartford Retreat, which was then Connecticut's only asylum for the destitute insane. Thankful Hersey was more fortunate. During the trial, the court had received several depositions testifying to her excellent character. A man named Samuel Foote paid a bond for the protection of the community and hired her to work in his home. She lived there doing sewing and light housework until her death in 1857. Samuel remained in the asylum for the next 10 years and in that time came to believe that he was the prophet Elijah. Eventually, he stopped eating or drinking and died of starvation on July 14th, 1865. By then, his sister, the prophet, had been dead for six years. She died from natural causes this time, making her second trip to heaven in Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season six of the podcast. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, oh, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Oh, Did you God. like that? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Was that uh, an app? No, it was just audition. Oh, oh I just I, I typed in like make your voice sound like the guy who does the previews or whatever. It's oh, movie yeah, trailers. Yeah. Right, right, right. And um, it didn't work quite as well, but I didn't have a lot of time. Like, <laughs> Troy's always giving me shit for not not um, well, having a dramatic enough <laughs> right, voice, right, right. I guess, with the title. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just figured that would be kind of yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, getting Troy laughing. That's always something <laughs> I like to do early on. What's going on, dude? It's been a little while. Yeah, yeah, no, everything's going okay. Yep. So, yeah, I, you know, last time we completely jinxed the weather. God, I know. By saying, you know, boy, it's finally getting nice. Well, we just need to stop bullshit small I, I talking know. about weather and get, dive into the important issues. I guess, because that was a bad idea. No, I so. know. Have you written any new books since the last time I yeah, saw you? Yeah, I have. Well, no. Oh, no, <laughs> not since the last time you saw me, no. But 
I do have a new one coming out later this month, though. Already? Well, it's it's not really already. Um, you know, I keep several projects going at the same time. Uh-huh. So, but the new book in the Hell Hath No Fury series is out next. Oh, uh, okay. In a few weeks. I saw the cover. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited about that one. It was a fun one to write. So. Uh, and I'm actually talking about, well, I'm talking about Hell Hath No Fury tonight. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, no, it's, um, that'll be out uh, later in the month, as will a new issue of The Morbid Curious. Nice. Yeah, issue number five. That's just rock and roll. And then yeah, I- yeah, it's only twice a year. So it's not a, it's not a huge, um, you know, huge commitment and time and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So it looked uh, great, but yeah, it's fun, and we get a lot of lot of material this time. In fact, more material than I could possibly use. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we'll um, you know roll some over to next time. So well, that's awesome. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, things are these are going keeping pretty busy. Um, I had new Audible book Audible books mm-hmm. came out. Um, it's the Poe book that Nevermore book that came out last uh-huh. year. I don't do them at the same time. They usually just whenever, cause I don't do them. Right. Yeah. I usually, I have That's guys so bizarre who do to them. Me that you don't I don't want to do them. Yeah. I don't want to do them. Um, uh, but I have guys who do it and uh, Nevermore just came out and murder by gaslight should be coming out fairly soon. That one got backed up because the, uh, recording guy and the narrator both got COVID. Oh, so, geez. Yeah. And they, I guess it knocked them down pretty hard, even though they were, vaccinated but yeah um so yeah but those are coming out too so that's exciting and um our big semi big announcement mm-hmm. with the the extra podcast starting up um we're doing a spinoff i guess you would say uh yeah and this this first season or not i, I don't know i hate to call it a season like a it's called a series or, or series series yeah. pod, whatever um is is called the moonlight murder and it is uh, a murder and ghost story from 1900 mm-hmm. uh, is when it takes place. And we're going to do it every other week for the, for the uh, Patreon uh, feed. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's been a lot of fun. I've been working on it. Uh, I've already gotten like four episodes done. Um, so I'm having a lot of fun with it. And it's, it's just ex- it's something kind of exciting to get to do. And um, it'll be more more just the narration. You know, we won't we won't do you know a discussion on each one or anything. Right. Cody's gonna edit it and uh, put it together, and then we will um, we'll put those out on our Patreon feed every other week. So we've had a lot of people who've been signing up for Patreon. So that's the only place it's gonna be. So if you want to hear it, you've got to get on Patreon, and we will have it available there. And even if you don't get it before the twelfth. The episodes will be available on yeah. on the feed. You but, can listen to our whole backlog, uh, right? Back right, everything is is up. on there. So, uh, but yeah, if if anybody who wants to hear it, uh, if it wasn't an, if I couldn't if I couldn't tempt you with the Orson Welles episode uh-huh. with the ghost of Orson Welles uh-huh. uh, on the Patreon uh, that I did put on there, um, maybe this will because this is going to be an ongoing thing. And I think I think we're just going to keep going when we finish this story, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably going to be. 10, 12 episodes, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a pretty long, complicated story. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's got a lot of twists and turns and murder suspects and it, it was a fun one to write. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been fun. So anyway, um, but we're, I think that we'll probably just keep going Mm -hmm. and do some more of them. So, 
Um, but yeah, so I had a bunch of stuff I hit Cody with. Like, it's like, okay, I got to get through all these. Um, so just two more things. Um, we just added uh, two dozen uh, dinner and spirits events and river road tours to the schedule for the rest of the spring and all the way to the end of the summer. Um, the dinners are going to include American Witch, Lemp Family, St. Louis Exorcism. We have one more of those in July. Mm -hmm. And then I will not be doing any more of those until fall. Uh, Wyatt Earp is coming back. We're bringing that one back again. People really like that one. We did it before. Lizzie Borden will be back for the anniversary. You know, I always try to do it around beginning of August every year. Yeah, you know? keep, so, it, keep it festive. Yeah, keep, yeah. keep it festive, exactly. And uh, that'll probably be updated this time. I've been updating some of the different dinners. So that one will be updated. Um, the Valley of the Kings, uh, the, the, King, the Curse of the Pharaohs, mm -hmm. uh, oh. is coming up uh, in September. And uh, that book will be out sometime this summer. So that seems like a different kind of thing. It is. For it's you. the first book that I have ever written that is does not take place in America. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be. It has a couple hauntings. of it has a couple of American tie-ins with the curse, but yeah. for the most part, it is not. It's obviously takes place in Egypt. Sure. Most of it will <laughs> Wait, really? in England, but Egypt, Indiana. So I, I thought if I was going to do a book that was outside the United States, it needed to be something that I just have loved like my entire life. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I like cats it. out of the bag. That one's coming. So cat this Egypt so, jokes. Yeah. 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 Anubis is out of the bag. So, yes. you know, yeah. Anyway. So, Oh, one more, one last thing, uh, April 30th. And we only have a few spots left, but somebody is, uh, several people asked me about this. We are doing a ghost hunt at the mineral Springs, which we do them couple times a month anyway, but this one's different um, because it is also a ghost hunting how-to workshop followed by the ghost hunt. Oh. Uh, so it starts a little earlier than normal. Um, so I think it's at six or seven, seven maybe. Anyway, it starts early, yeah. earlier than the ghost hunts usually do. And so we're having a uh, workshop and then the ghost hunt will be after that. Uh, so that's April 30th. Um, that's on the website at ghosthunts.net. And I just added like 15 new ghost hunts too. That's so, awesome. So yeah, for spring and rest of the spring and into the summer. That'll so, be fun. Yeah, just put a bunch of new stuff up. So, That's oh, awesome. and the River Road tours and the dinners are at dinnerandspirits.com. So yeah, if you go to the main website, you can get everywhere. So yeah, like whenever I'm looking yeah. for something, I just yeah. whatever URL comes to mind first, I type that yeah. in, and then I just yeah. bounce around. Yeah, you can sites find it. But all... yeah, if you just go to AmericanHauntings.net, everything's there. So. It'll get you there. Have you ever seen that meme that says, uh, my sexual orientation is the cast of The Mummy from 1999? It just has <laughs> no. pictures of all the main characters. That's funny. It's no. like, underrated film. Not even underrated. I love it. Everybody mm -hmm. loves it. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's great. Uh, let's talk about, uh, we got some listener, uh, one listener review that I wanted oh, okay. to, to call sure. out. This is from Kate Meets World, and it's titled From oh the Lou God, and we Proud. can actually figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's got like a lot of teeth You didn't have to it. decipher it. Yeah. So. Yeah. It said, uh, from, from the Lou and Proud, I'm guessing it's from that Nelly song. I'm not going to sing it. Um, oh, it says, Thank you. just starting on episode 10 of season one, the podcast is truly amazing for anyone who's interested in the history of specific spooky folklore, super well written and produced. If you like the production on season one, episode 10, just wait. <laughs> it's going to get so much better, Kate. I promise you. Yeah. Uh, yes. So Ooh. thank you so much. Rate and review on iTunes. So are you ready to dive in sure. to this 
very long. It was very long episode. I know it is very long, and I'll apologize to those of you who would prefer shorter episodes. You gotta stop apologizing. I know, for it. but sometimes, sometimes the stories just end up a little long. So, yes, and this one it's worth talking about. There's a couple different themes I've noted here that we're gonna we're gonna end up diving into. So, Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist. <laughs> how I have this uh, listed out. So you said the Antichrist has been a boogeyman for. Uh, many years. Some fear he'd bring about the end times. Others tried to seek him out for various reasons, either to, you know, get on his side or destroy him, as, as in this case. Uh, is it Rhoda Wakeman? Yes. Okay. Yes, a prophet sir. and religious leader sought him out to destroy him. On December 24th, 1885, she killed a man who was possessed by him. We will get back to that story, <laughs> but we got to lay a little bit more groundwork first. Yeah, yeah. William I, I, was, I, I laid a lot of groundwork in you, this episode. You did. So. You did. William Miller will it's like one of my favorite William bribes. Miller. Yes. Uh, yeah. he convinced the 100,000 people that the world was coming to an end. It always the numbers that these people got always I know. astound me like they're with, staggering with no Instagram accounts. You're right? I mean it's crazy. Yeah. So. And you mentioned I guess people are more susceptible cuz it's a turbulent time in American history. People wanted, you know, God to come clean up all the the mm -hmm. chaos that they had been causing. He uses the Bible and math, which is either really cool or really frustrating, oh, depending just, on who you are. No, it's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying that somebody would devote like 14 years of sitting and counting things. They, and they I didn't mean, have Instagram, just, like you I said. know, but come what are you going to do? When, well, you're completely insane. I guess it's fine. <laughs> yeah. He converts a Boston minister who spread the message with pamphlets. Um, was this kind of the method they'd find people that also had audiences and like convert? Yeah, well, them and there's, and you know, I had to. God, I had to trim this down. I'm sure. I mean, it was just, it's its a really long story, but this guy became like a, a, um, a devotee of mm -hmm. him and, and convinced he was on to something and offered to help. Right. And so he already had a church, and so he also had a printing press that he used ah. for his, you know, pamphlets and Bible tracts and, sure. you know, the little chick. Do you remember those? The little chick? Those No, the chick. Jack Chick Productions, the little booklets. Hmm, I don't think so. Well, that's probably before your time. Of I course. think they're still around. I think, uh, but yeah, they were all. They would they, these. Um, they they were little pamphlets, and they were always about. Would have like a religious theme story, and most and there were, uh, you know, a dozen of them about the rapture and the mm -hmm. antichrist and all this stuff. I'll have to find you some because I think you can still get them because I think yeah. Orrin, I think my son was able to get some tracks them down, and I think he, I think he wrote had to write a letter or something to get him and then of course now he's on their mailing list oh and, wow that's but, awesome which cracks him up but yeah yeah so because he'd never heard of my was telling him about him because when i was a kid they were they were around that's amazing so. yeah i know you can get like a lot of the um i think you can get like a book or a vhs or something from like heaven's gate from the people that are still oh yeah that, that are still running it yeah, i just saw something out, about that recently there's a new documentary yeah or oh that's what it was up, I think. that's what it was yeah um, so that, that's, a, that's a fun one to check out. Is fun the right word? Um, the critics had a field day after the end of the world didn't happen with this date that Miller had predicted. And, you know, he, he explained in a logical explanation, look, calculations might be a little bit off. It's kind of like when people say, you know, things, you know, it's not a precise science, but you shouldn't do that because sciences are precise. So he comes up with a second date of October 22nd, 1884. They kind of poke fun at this um, in Parks and Rec where there's a, a cult called the Reasonableists, and they're called that, so if anybody goes against them, they'll seem like they're arguing against something very reasonable, but they have an end-of-the-world like celebration, and nothing happens. Ron Swanson's like writing them checks for stuff because he's like, will you take a check? And they're like, sure, yeah. Like, whatever. Um, or they're writing Ron checks. 
And then at the end, nothing happens. And they're like, oh, I got the math wrong. You know, he's like, I think it's actually the 15th. Can we book the park? And she's like, no, sorry, it's booked up that day. He goes, oh, I meant uh, it was the 21st, actually. And, <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's amazing. Um, but like I said, that's the mistake. You don't, you don't give people no, the no, end date. No, no. And actually, I, um, I had written about that story in Taking Up Serpents. Mm -hmm. And then I went through an a list of all the people who also gave dates. Uh -huh. And there's a lot of them. And there are many of them are pretty recent. Oh, um, and it's, you don't ever give the dates. So. Well, so I know that like some of these movements would lose steam whenever, you know, there's a date that comes and goes. Oh, or whatever. sure. Why? Okay. Why isn't QAnon lost? All I, I don't steam? know. I have no idea because we're still, they're still waiting. We, not we. For JFK. They are still waiting for JFK Jr. who's not dead to show up and lead the you know, lead them to victory or something. I don't understand all of it, nor do I want to. Right. Uh, but I don't, they, they, they'll they have these gatherings in it. Well, they were in Dallas. For so long. Yeah, and they were just like a, a thousand people there. And it's like, what the hell is wrong with these people? I don't understand. I, don't I just know. can't, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, anyway, I'm just wondering why, what's different about this and why when, you know, they just keep moving the goalposts, but other things kind of like this one lost steam. But you said people started getting weird kind of toward the end and free loving, regressing yeah. to like childlike yeah, states bizarre. and things, which is, yeah, that's just good fun. Um, <laughs> most of the followers are pissed after nothing happens. They call it the great disappointment. Mm -hmm. It's also my nickname Well, I mean, it was, all, it was also the second time this guy yeah. pulled this. <laughs> Fool so, me once. Yeah, and then, he, uh, then it keeps on going, well, you know, Maybe I'm a little off. Okay, dude. I mean, you know, come on now. I so. just imagine that uh, Charlie Day meme with all like the, the string and <laughs> yeah. the bulletin board yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that's probably what his house looked like. Yeah, sure. I mean, because he's got all the, and he's torn all the pages out of Bibles and has written numbers on all of them and trying to do the mathematical calculations. Right. You know, and it's just like, wow. Oh, and you talk about how did this cult stuff end up in churches? It was thanks to, well, mostly thanks to John Nelson. Derby. So he takes Miller's ideas, gives them a twist, used the Bible to predict things, and the book of Revelation was actually prophecy, according right, to him. But right. you, you gave some facts that I didn't really know so about some the book history, of Revelation. Uh, yes, the actual yes, history yes. behind the book. Just so it was basically, it's written in code and it's warnings yeah, about Nero. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be taken, I don't think any of it's meant to be taken literally, mm -hmm. but, um, but it was not meant to be taken literally. It was not visions he was having you know because i mean dude you were on a hell Some, of an acid yeah trip right it, it, they were stuff. not they were not visions he was having they were warnings that he was trying to to send out in code and i mean but that's what happens yeah you know i mean it's like the you know the 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 uh you ever heard of the cargo cult the cargo cult. Yeah, Did they like wear cargo South Pacific, shorts no it was like a south <laughs> yeah it was like a south pacific island and um and, you know, untouched by humanity or something. I, I'm trying to remember the whole story, but um, but it, it, like a plane, like crashed and it had, you know, cargo on it. Mm. And they, you know, created an entire religion around this crashed plane. Oh, wow. You know, or like when... It um, makes sense. Well, in like, you know, the Aztecs had this, you know, the whole big thing about, uh, I believe it was... Quetzalcoatl, who was a white man who showed up one day. Well, you know, it was just some guy that wandered off course and ended up in South America and Central America. And then when uh, Cor not Cortez, yeah. Was it Cortez? Yeah. Yeah, when Cortez shows up, to, they think it's him mm -hmm. coming back and he kills them all, you right. know, and enslaves all of them. Yep. And so, you know, these things 
pop up. So I guess I guess my point is is that anything can become a religion if mm-hmm. you want it to be. You yep. know, I mean, and and as I always like to say, that the one thing you always have to remember is uh, one man's cult is another man's religion, and vice versa. Yes, I like because that. every religion that there is, it doesn't matter how mainstream it is now it started out as a cult Mm -hmm. christianity was a cult i mean with a handful of people yeah you know and that's how things get started it's amazing it reminds me of the one of the scenes in the one of the newer star trek movies or something and they're trying to like hide the spaceship from some ancient tribe and they see them and they're already drawing them right things like that right and then yeah ezekiel saw the wheel and all that you know who knows um so okay it was written in code you said you had two kind of innovations. First innovation, like I said, not setting a date. Second was the rapture, which was, I knew that it wasn't in the Bible a lot, but based on one ambiguous verse from Thessalonians. And the idea is, it's brilliant. You get a ticket to heaven, doesn't take <laughs> off right away um, until World War One, And then they use some crazy cool like marketing tactics and yeah, stuff. This yeah. is stuff that I definitely would have helped with back in the day. It would have been so cool, <laughs> like down to help spread any message with this. But this is where we got fundamentalism. Yeah. And Which I didn't was know that. just a bunch of rich millionaires yeah. who decided to publish these pamphlets. Okay. And that's where it called the fundamentals. That's where it came from. Okay. All right. So time this there was all just a way to go back in time. So. <laughs> right. By the early 1920s, it's a rising force in American religion and culture. They started to form relationships with conservative groups. Uh, so the Klan had about 40,000 fundamentalist ministers as members. Mm, yeah, Ooh. which really says a lot. I mean, it let's does. be honest. It does. So. Yeah. Well, you know what? We're not afraid. We'll go on record right now. We don't support the Klan. Okay? No, we do not. We don't. Yeah. Uh, but then scandals, the Great Depression hurt the movement. I uh, wouldn't get another life until Cultural Revolution of the 60s. So what the hell is going on in the 30s, 40s, 50s? What people? What people do? Uh, I guess things were too easy and we were too, were not worried, not easy because you had wars. You had, well, you had the depression. depression for most of that time, most of that time. And then you had World War II. People are a little too busy to be worrying about. And this that's, kind of that's stuff. how it goes, right? Yeah, yeah idle hands. Yeah, crazy. And then stuff you know the fifties. You know everything's clean cut and easy. And then in the sixties, when you know the counterculture movement comes along, and you know the world becomes much more turbulent, then people are now looking for mm-hmm. something. Yes. And so they start start to stroll back toward you know, fundamentalist churches. I mean, not that they'd ever gone away, mm-hmm. but they became more popular again. Pendulum kind of swings yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, The Antichrist. I love a good Antichrist movie. Do you have any any favorites or thoughts on them? <laughs> Just the original Omen, I think this is probably stick with that. That was one. it? So, okay. Yeah. Okay, if, yeah. you, if you guys have some Antichrist movies, you, uh, you let me know. <laughs> also created from a single verse in the Bible, appears in three passages, but never once in the book of Revelation. No, nope. So again, things all. getting twisted, tied. But and again, though, and the one thing I always tell people, everything you think you know about the Antichrist comes from the Omen. Yes. It has not come from the Bible. And that's important. It is important because all that stuff was made up. I mean, it was for the movie. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's a great movie. But none of that stuff is, is anywhere. It's all from like, you know, just stuff they made up for the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. And then it's adopted. It's gospel truth after <laughs> yeah, that. Exactly. And here's how it works. Just before the second coming, the Antichrist will act as Satan's chief agent on earth. He'll forge a one-world government through promises of peace. Jesus will return, expose him as an imposter, defeat him in the Battle of Armageddon, and reign with Christian martyrs for a thousand years on earth. Right. That just seems like a long time to hang out with somebody. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's not in the Bible. 
Right, right, right. It's not in the Bible either. Also, something I just like to point out, if God created the devil, he either doesn't have the power to stop him or he doesn't care to. Anyway, (laughs) moving on. um, Let's see. There have been a lot of uh, Antichrist candidates throughout history. And every time one of these uh, men die, uh, have there been like women accused of being? Uh, and not that I'm aware of. I, um, I I was looking for that, but I'm not really finding it. Okay. Um, well, you know, I mean, religion is a very sure. misogynistic for the most part. Which, how that got started again, I don't know. Right. Because Christianity was pretty much started by women. I was just. They one... were the leaders of the church at the figured, beginning. I and figured somewhere if... along the line, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna blame the Catholics, but uh, <laughs> somewhere along bet. the line, it it got messed up. So, I just figured if there was any time they would credit women with something, it would have been as the well. Antichrist. Yeah, well, yeah, because I mean, you know, every, we we've already talked about all the witchcraft stuff in earlier episodes of this season, and of course, that was women were blamed for everything. Bad. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem like it could be, you know, but apparently not. Not so, so much. Yeah. That's, a, that's a high position, you know. Yeah, so right. Maybe exactly. not. Yeah. Then the movement, yeah. movements go through uh, some ups and downs through modern times, but there's two events that really help put steam into it. Uh, the atom bomb at Hiroshima, and then the founding of Israel in 1947. Mm, yeah, and yeah, like you mentioned, the fundamentalists are vici- viciously um, anti-Semitic. An- anti-Semitic. Yes, it has and, nothing to do with them trying to help Jewish people. Yeah, and, has, and they're open. About it has to do with them fulfilling their prophecies so that the world will come to an end. Yay! I mean, who's pushing for this? I don't. I, know. I don't understand. It's like the. I always use as an example. I always go back to the. People who talk about, well, if you drive under these seven bridges, they're the gateways to hell. And when you drive through the last one, you'll end up in hell. Who wants to do that? Right. I don't understand. Isn't so, the world bad yeah, enough? Yeah, I mean, who wants to bring about the end of the world? Apparently fundamentalists. Yes. Uh, because, and that is, I, I, and I wasn't kidding. When I said, put this on pause, go look and see. You'll find out, you'll see that I'm right. That's insane. It's absolutely insane. So you said a, a new wave came about creating a new generation of televangelists, fundamentalist mm-hmm. political causes. Reagan gets in and welcomes a lot of them to D.C. Then they come back with Obama renewing their links to white Well, yeah, that's when, you know, the whole racist thing, it got, you know, yeah. is, it really freaked people out. Yes, so, yes, and it know. was front and center, and yeah. you yeah. started to know exactly who your neighbors were uh, exactly. at that yeah. point. Yeah, that's true. Now, circling back to earlier, let's start, let's talk about Rhoda Wakeman. Yeah. Born Rhoda Sly on November 6, 1786 in Fairfield, Connecticut. Marries a distiller named Ira Wakeman. Who sounds like a lovely man. Yeah, real real piece of work. Yeah. They got a bunch of kids. But yet they have like 15 kids. Yeah, that's just. That is not, sounds like a happy life to me. No, no, no. Uh, Ira threatens to kill her all the time, provoking <laughs> some kind of crisis in her. She says, you know, Jesus appeared to me. That's beginning these seven years of travail. Uh, she believed her husband might kill her at any time. Rightfully so. Yeah, and probably he sleeps with a straight razor. So Yeah, what the hell Well, is just because he, if Casey wakes up and decides he wants you to know, cut her throat. I mean, it's just, you know, I, could, I get it. Right. No, I don't. <laughs> it's like I, I get sl- it at all. I, I sleep with the remote next to me in case I wake up, want to watch some TV. Uh, yeah, before it's I get a back little different. Yeah. So he's a heavy drinker, which never helps with anything like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, he then again set setting dates, sets a date for her death, and then made a uh, said that he made a league with the devil, but he had to kill her first. Right. So he's got some screws loose <laughs> yeah. uh, up there, obviously, and some and probably not helped with with alcohol and everything else. Um, and this yeah tumultuous relationship. On the day she said to die, uh, Ira makes a fire, sits her down, and then 
takes a length of burning wood and thrusts well, it into her heart. That's her story. Maybe. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would hope she wouldn't just like sit down and kind of take this. And then also well, apparently like, she was, she did. Of, yeah. So. But basically claimed to have some kind of a religious or near death experience. Mm-hmm. Other sources say Ira just beat the hell out of her again. Not good, but yeah. not necessarily yeah. the story that right. she says. Talked about Rhonda's beliefs, which I put Rhoda. as delusions. Or, or Rhoda. Um, That's sorry, okay. Rhoda. Rhonda. Rhonda. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sh- things like it should be illegal to be married. Uh, yeah, so well, did you blame her? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, I thought that this would lead into the cult later. I figured that people wouldn't be allowed to be married, but that didn't seem to be the case. Mm-mm. She no. just thought it should she be illegal. She just thought it should be, yeah. Um, she could forgive sin. She could bring about the apocalypse. And she could know thoughts about others just by uh, know the thoughts of others just by looking into their eyes. And yeah, but I, I like the fact that she was convinced that if anything, if she decided that it was going to happen, yeah. that she would bring about the end of the world. Yeah. So, and I thought, okay, this is not not too grandiose here. No. Well, I mean, it's 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 a it's a dead man switch kind yeah, of thing, right? Right. You know? Right. So, right. Yeah, it protects you for a while. I like I like. Well, we're, I'm getting ahead of the story here, but later when <laughs> she said, oh, "Well, if you if you let me out of jail on probation, you know, I'll I'll." Make sure that the world doesn't. Right, right. I'll take know, care of everything. Like, okay. Yeah. So she believes this uh, this first attempt of the Antichrist. She thought the Antichrist was going to kill her and bring about the end of the world. She thought the first attempt was through Ira, which I guess kind of makes yeah, sense. I scared to death. Understand it. Yeah. So she and her followers tie him up and <laughs> stab him and cut him a bunch, but they don't kill him. Yeah. Uh, have a change of heart at the time. But, but I'm going to say that probably pretty quickly led to mm-hmm. his end. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he quite recovered. Yeah. So. And nobody mourned. Um, yeah, no. No, I'm going to say no. Now, <laughs> moving on to July 3rd, 1836, an event that shaped the cult. The two of her followers, Justice Matthews and Mayotab May- May- Sanford, they yeah. get married. And then Thankful Hershey, which was a weird name for me for a while. I know, me too. I know. Uh, school teacher joins the cult. Samuel Sly, her brother, was her most devoted follower. Uh, before his conversion, he seemed harmless, but that obviously changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, he has some definite issues. I mean, yes. some some brain trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's not his fault. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a guy that's brain damaged, and his sister cons him into believing anything she says. Right. So, I mean, it's not his fault. Uh, but he does some very nasty things. He does. So. That's why I never trust my sister when she tells me to do anything. <laughs> she get the chicken out of the fridge. I'm like, I'm not I moving from so. here, lady. <laughs> um, this kind of points back or harkens back to like the witch trials and things. If anybody pissed her off, she just accuses yeah, them. Exactly. Being it's exactly wizards. what she did. And, um, you know, and she would just get rid of anybody she wanted to. And, you know, when she, you know, her, her daughter and, and son-in-law, you know, I mean, she just would accuse anybody who made her mad. Yeah. And I'm, I I said that there's, a, I'd say there's a good chance that they kept an eye out on their backs. Sure. You know, because if you think she's that mad, you know. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, nobody's safe. Even the people even no. closest to her. It's like, no. why would you want to be, I guess it's, better, <laughs> what do they say? Better to be at the right hand of the devil than in his path or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 1845, there's two important events that happen. Charles Sanford is released from the Hartford Retreat for the Insane. And he joins the cult <laughs> of Cures Insanity. Yeah. And then Amos Hunt, 17, also joined the sect. So they, uh, Rhoda and Samuel, they live in a small house near near Yale. I'm guessing they didn't attend. <laughs> no. And they make money selling snake oil and stuff. Well, I like the fact that they were babysitters. I mean, mm. can you imagine? No. Like oh the cult God. lady and her, you know, brain-damaged brother. Eh, let's drop the kids off yeah, there. You gotta yeah. be real desperate, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, geez. Um, so 
November 1855, Amos and his wife bring food to the service. Oh, yeah. They're accused of poisoning the food. She finally goes to the doctor, E.C. Chamberlain, who's like, you're insane. No, <laughs> yeah, no she's yeah, insane. Yeah. Then Dr. Benjamin Stillman at Yale said the pie contained enough poison to kill 10 well, men. It, which he never actually said. Right. Rhoda announced that's what he said. Uh, it, but it I, love the, I, love the, uh, I love the ingredients, though. Yes. So. Yes. And I, well, I didn't, I didn't list them all out. <laughs> Um, if you brain brains of a man, uh-huh. well, where did you get those? Okay, but the oil of men's bones, eyes of dogs, eyes of roosters, garden basil, yeah, random, a topaz stone, copper, zinc, platinum, and the entrails of a toad. Very specific. <laughs> yeah. You got to follow uh, a recipe. And but basil. Yeah, and some yeah. basil. Well, you know, for yeah. the flavor. That's probably what did it. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> you said it's probably E. coli. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everybody got sick. It wasn't just just her. Right. And so now, clearly, her new arch enemy <laughs> is Amos Hunt. But then he just buys his way out of it for yeah. 500 bucks. Yeah, so I like that. That's, so Suddenly, that's the, thing. the Antichrist left. Did she do, um, you kind of talked about it, I guess, a little bit with maybe living off donations and things or whatever, but. That is a huge thing with cult leaders. Was she taking everybody for everything they had? I, I think they were supporting her. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Um, and apparently, I don't know where Samuel got the money to move them into the house mm-hmm. that, or in the actually series of houses they lived in. But um, I'm going to guess that they were cleaning up from everybody had to be kicking in, and half of them were living in the house anyway. Right. So right. there's probably money coming. All of them had jobs. Mm-hmm. And my guess would be they were turning over the money to her. Got it. So. Got it. Okay. She moves on to a new man of sin who is Justice Matthews. There's no obvious reason for her to pick him. Yeah. And they tried. Yeah, he'd been coming. He'd been part of the cult for a while. Yeah. She yeah. And looked and at her wrong. Or I, it's hard to say. For too long. Or, I mean, or maybe she thought he had money. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it worked once That's with true. Amos, but this guy, Amos smelled a rat uh-huh. and gave and coughed up the money and got out of there. Yeah. This guy was just too devoted to her would be my guess. Mm. And so him, you know, he gets accused and he's like, okay, well you go ahead and kill me then. Cause yeah. that's, you know, I'm up for it. If it's going to save her life, you can go ahead and kill me. And I thought, wow. That's okay. <laughs> this is nuts. Yeah. That's a, a whole other level of yeah, brainwashing. Yeah, like, it damn. is. Uh, so December 23rd, thankful Hersey, is it Hershey or Hersey? Hersey. 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 Abigail Sables and Julie Davis are among those that wrote in Samuels. There's a full moon. They tie up justice and sort of an exorcism begins. Mm-hmm. And you said he's willing to be killed if the spirit could be driven yeah. out or if it couldn't be driven out. Yeah. Yeah. Just, as long as it would save Rhoda. Right. Right. Yeah. Samuel grabbed the witch hazel branch they'd put under the house and beats justice with it, mm-hmm. cuts his throat, plunges the metal rod into his chest 12 times in the shape of a cross, <sighs> as one does. And then Justice's brother-in-law freaks out, but they assure him Rhoda will ra- we'll raise her from the dead. Yeah, don't worry like, about it. Yeah, yeah it'll, it'll be, be cool. fine. Didn't and, work. And then, the, I mean, that's obviously sad, but then the dumbest part, they place <laughs> the knife next to him so it looked like he kills himself. Even mm-hmm. his son thinks yeah. he did it to himself. Somebody must have suggested that to him. I guess Whenever. very strongly. Probably, I'm going to guess that when the uncle came and got him yeah. and he said, listen, you need to play along yeah. here. And they're trying to make it look like he killed himself. You need to play along. God. That's that because why else? Sure. I mean, because, you know, I mean, so he, he cut his own throat. Now, was that before or after <laughs> he stabbed himself 12 times with the 
the lid from the stove. Right. You know, come on now. Uh, like, yeah, he fell down an elevator shaft onto some bullets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's, I mean, and I'm sure, yeah, if I walk in and see my dad like that and we're around a group of people that I knew did it, I'm probably saying whatever the hell <laughs> exactly. I can to not. Exactly. End that up would be like my him. guess is what was happening there. Yes. Yeah, so soon after this, the cult begins spiraling to its inevitable. And Sheriff Leander Parmaline. Yes, uh, an interesting name. It man. is. It sounds yeah. like a Mike Sure character or something. <laughs> um, arrests everyone who'd been present that night. And then Samuel confesses the day after Christmas. Newspapers have a field day, and Rhoda is seen as too delusional to be taken seriously as uh, a threat, yeah. which we strongly disagree yes, with. Yes, yes. As you yes. will see. Yes. Charles Sanford, the young man uh, who's released <laughs> from the insane asylum earlier in our story, he snaps for some reason the night after his Uncle Justice murder. I'm still trying to picture what he looks like from a description. I know, I, I know. Can't, um, I can't even wrap my head around I don't know if that. There's one. a sketch of him or something. Yeah, somewhere. there's. I, I, I like to think there is. Just, it's just too good. Yes. He leaves his parents' house with an axe the morning of January 1st, which is normal. However, the three foot long hickory club sharpened at both ends and covered with undecipherable writing. That's <laughs> yeah. a little yeah, that's odd a little for odd. him. <laughs> and then he runs into this man, Enoch Sperry, 69, a farmer who's on his way to his neighbor's house to pick up a sleigh box. What's a sleigh box? Oh, okay. So I knew you were going to ask me that. I, um, I was going to try to figure out how I could put it into the. There's just no easy way to write that in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know what a sleigh looks like mm -hmm. with the runners. And mm -hmm. so that's what he was pulling, just the runners with the bar connecting them. Mm -hmm. So the sleigh box is what people ride in. Oh, so it fits on the okay, top. Okay. And so it kind of locks in place on the top, and then the riders sit in the box. Got it. Um, and apparently, you know, a neighbor had needed to borrow the box. And so he was on his way to get it with Got just it. the just the runners and his horse. Okay, all right, that that, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're not exactly sure if this was wrong place, wrong time, or if he yeah. sought him out somehow. Yeah, it's but hard to say. Charles kills him with the axe, and God. later in a brutal way, later enters the house of Ichabod. And for absolutely no reason. Yeah. Keep in mind, this guy is just a, a decent farmer out who'd world. heard that she. I mean, he has aches and pains and stuff, and has heard that she can make you know, medicine. So he'd bought some medicine from Rhoda. That's literally the only thing this guy done wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and he just kills him. And then the other people with the house, with yes. the Umberfields, he just is on a spree. Yeah, yeah. At that point, kind of full berserker mode there. Umberfields killed with the axe. Uh, the, the kid runs away and yells for him out the window, which is smart. Yeah, until, but then dad comes in and thinks he can reason with this guy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking, oh, number one, this guy's got to look like something out of your nightmares. It's anyway. got to be covered with blood. And, well, yeah, before and that. is covered with blood. Yeah. And you're really thinking that he's already tried to kill the kid and the maid. Yeah. So you're really thinking you, you can reason him with no, him? No, you said he sat in a chair. He should have grabbed the chair. Uh -huh. and used yeah, it as a no weapon. kidding. Um, yeah, I just, I can't wrap my head around that one. Um, and then, so he just doesn't say anything, gets up, is going to walk out of the house, and instead just... <laughs> clubs the guy from behind. Yeah, why turn your back on somebody I like don't know, that? man. That's crazy. Uh, Samuel Perkins ends up finding the body of Enoch Sperry. Police start looking for the killer. The cops and the posse eventually find Sanford, who fights back and gets one of the cops with the axe. And he's sentenced to hang, but he dies six months after the murders. Yeah. Uh, I real, real loss there. <laughs> right. Yeah. I titled this section, The End is Never. Uh, while in jail awaiting trial, Rhoda managed to compose a document to the ministers of the world, cataloged all the misdeeds of the Antichrist, and basically it's a bunch of bullshit about how mankind had caused all of her all problems. All of her problems. It's everyone else's fault she yes. was in jail. 
I mean, that is so standard sure. cult leader. Right. I mean, it it just is. You know, it's it's because you did this. This is why. Mm-hmm. You know, ask Jim Jones because you people were not faithful. Yeah. And so I'm going to need you to drink this flavor aid now. So <laughs> was she um, was she fucking everybody in the cult too? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I I mean I've, I I never saw anything like that in anything that I've read about her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she was older, mm. and I just don't I don't think she was. Wasn't that wasn't her bad? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, no, usually that's just men who have cults, sure. not usually women. So, uh, In another letter, she complained about her unfaithful followers. Eventually, Rhoda and Thankful are indicted. Three months later, they go to trial. It takes 10 minutes of deliberation, <laughs> and they're found uh, not guilty by reason of I, I just, I loved, um, I loved everything about the, the trial. I could make it so short because... You know, every doctor that they brought on the stand thought they were crazy. And then the prosecutor told the judge and there's a it's it's longer. I've written I've written more about it. But he says that he just had absolutely no idea how insane these people were. He would have (laughs) never have brought them to trial. He would have just locked them up in the first place, which is why it only took the jury 10 minutes, because the judge sends them out and goes, just bring in whatever you think is right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, everybody knows what's going to happen. We here. all know. Yeah. Uh, Samuel and Rhoda go to the Hartford retreat. Thankful- which is where which is where the, the other guy came right. from. Right. They do a bang-up job there with mental health. Yeah, it obviously. sounds like. I mean, so, it sounds like a fun place. Oh, you know, Hartford yeah, retreat. it's really great, yeah. Go watch pretty boats <laughs> go by. Uh, <laughs> Thankful worked for a man named Samuel Foote. Uh, sewing and doing lighthouse work until her death in 1857. And Samuel, Samuel remained in the asylum for 10 years and came to believe he was prophet Elijah <laughs> and starves himself. Yeah. To death. Isn't that crazy? That's kind of, uh, I mean, obviously, well, yeah, but I mean, really hard. Yeah. That's, that's hardcore. Yeah. And uh, this was six years after Rhoda died of natural causes. And you know what? I never would have known who she was or heard about yeah, her. Or it's thought not, about her. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's just one of those odd little stories. And it's, it's, um, I thought it was a, a good way to close up after the witchcraft stuff. You know what I mean? Because we're going to move on. Um, and usually I, I've been putting teasers at the end, but I just figured I'd save it till we had the discussion. But um, we're going to talk about a cursed town mm-hmm. next. Actually, two cursed towns, the next two episodes. Two nice. very different ones. Is one of them Alton? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, for real. <laughs> I mean, like really cursed. So I'm excited. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, this was just such an odd little story. And it just, it's so, it's so American. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sad to say, but it is. It's right. very, it's very, I mean, there are just so many crazy cults and religious movements in our past. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. In, in, our, in present. our present. But, you know, but it just really kind of just seemed to fit. It was a good fit for this season. So, you know, I agree. a lot of crazy stuff. I love the crazy stuff. <laughs> want to give some quick shout out to our latest uh, Patreon subscribers who've supported the show. So thank you to Krista, Mick, Amy, Bertrand, Amy, Jennifer, Jamie, and Sue. And all of those people will get to listen to the Patreon only episode, which starts next week. They will. So and the series. None of them will listen to the Orson Welles. Yes, piece. they will. Yeah, all the new people are signing up. These people, see the ones you just read, mm-hmm. did not know about uh-huh. this series. So they signed up just for the Orson Welles Tr- episode. Every time so. we get a new patron, Troy sends them an email for his personal <laughs> with account the with the link. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> it is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, macabre, Troy. Macabre. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, but it's true, though. 
Yeah, I, I mean, have, I when known. I was a kid, you know, I read and read and read and read and read and read. So when I read, you know, I, I we talked about this before, but you know, when you had the Scholastic Book Fair, yeah, the, the, the weekly reader thing that you could order books from, I'd ordered everything on, you know, spooky stuff, ghost stories and unsolved mysteries and Edgar Allan Poe and all this stuff. You know, Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of the Macabre. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I'd heard, but I'd watched you know, every Vincent Price movie ever made by the time I'm, you know, nine years old or something. But yeah. Um, and so I'd heard Macabre a million times, but I'd never put the two together. <laughs> right. And, and so when you bulbs. only read it. And so I, you, you have Macabre mm-hmm. or, I mean, there are other words too. Oh, epitome is also a great oh, epitome. Yeah. Uh-huh. Epitome. Yep. Are you sure you're pronouncing epitome right? right. Uh, let's see. Eulogy. Epitome of, it's the epitome of yes. misspelled words or misread words. So I love it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you have a question or comment about the world of macabre, email us at American Hauntings podcast at gmail.com. We got, he's sorry about that tangent. No, no, it's well, you, fine. You I, got I, it because I, I, I posted it on Facebook. Yeah. No one else knows what we're talking right. about. But then when they hear that, they'll go, oh, yeah, no, I didn't know either. That's right. what everybody said. So this is, uh, yeah, so we had, we, I get a lot of emails and we have some that are great, but just way too long to read for this. But I, I like to kind of shout them out. So I had really great, thoughtful emails from a John and from Ron. So thank you for those. But this one comes to us from Ashley. The subject is Kansas City. The message says, Hello, I love the show. Been listening for a while. I was wondering if you ever considered doing a season about Kansas City. I lived there, um, Missouri side, for a long time. There are all kinds of stories of local hauntings, ghosts, cryptids, and ghost tours there. Uh, I'd love it if you gave the city a thought. Anyway, thanks for your time you put into the show. Well, Ashley. and I will tell you that there is a very good book called Kansas City Haunts it by is. Becky Ray. I have it. Yeah, it is a very good book um, published by us. Mm-hmm. It's uh, on your site. But it is on my site, and it is an excellent book. And if you are... Uh, from the Kansas City area, or even have an interest in it, I think you would like it. Yeah. Um, I don't know when we'll get around to. I mean, you know, you, you you've seen how long our seasons yeah. are. We, we, we got a lot of ideas. Then, but um, I already know what the next season's going to be. Um, so, and it's actually one you requested, and I decided we're going to do it. Uh huh. Um, Wait, me so or the listeners? You. Oh, okay. Cody. All right. You requested. Um, but so, so what I think but it listen, it's going to be a ways off. <laughs> We've got a lot. I, hey, listen, and I know that some of you have heard me tell this before. This is the first time I've ever given Cody a list of all the episodes mm-hmm. and what we would be talking about. It was cool. So, yeah, and I don't normally do that, but I've decided that that's the best way to do it from now on. I like it. And it's been fun. Yeah. And it was actually fun to put it all together. Yes. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think that's how we'll do it from now on, but... So anyway, we, I already know what the next season's going to be. We know what every episode of this season's going to be, but it's not going to end till December. Yeah. So there's a long, still a long way to go mm-hmm. in this season. We have a lot of really great stories coming up. Yeah, so Ashley, if you're still listening in 2032. <laughs> yeah, maybe, well, yeah. Yeah, maybe. maybe you never know. In, so Until then, check out uh, Becky Ray's book. That's all I got. That's, that's the end of the show, man. Awesome. Okay, well, cool. Um, thanks for enduring this and thanks for the editing on it because it's not bad. Believe it or not, there's, I mean, this is some, you know, inside baseball Uh discussion here, but I really, I went like 
20 pages. No with shit. No mistakes. Wow. And then, of course, you know, once I make one, forget well, it. Did you see? You saw the picture no. I sent of Yeah, I did. I did. I, I was playing around with a service that'll transcribe an audio file and you can cut stuff out of it. And I showed Troy a part where it goes speak, like speaker A and then it thinks it's speaker B. And it's just like, son of a bitch, motherfucker. <laughs> no, it was God damn it. Oh, yeah, it yeah. was God damn it. I'm going to have to take a drink because my mouth <laughs> okay, had gotten yeah. dry. I saw that, sc that screenshot you sent me and I went, mm, I remember saying that. So. <laughs> I was I was angry. So, oh, well, anyway, guys, thank you so much for for sticking with this episode. I know it was a long one. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back uh, in two weeks with uh, another one. And again, next week for Patreon members. So uh, that's going to be in between. So there'll be a new show for Patreon people every week now. Um, we will have this other series going, so it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's going to be cool. So anyway, um, share with your friends. Um, the podcast. Thank you for people I know. I saw somebody who like dug up their old iTunes account so they could leave us a review, oh, yeah, 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 that which was, nice. was very cool. Uh, so, but do leave us a review if you haven't yet. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show. Mm -hmm. um, also, again, check us out on Patreon. It's just patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And there's, I said, new show every week. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of other stuff on there too. There's a ton of stuff. Um, people, they usually get early early chances to buy new books, mm -hmm. you know, new events, whatever. Get they always get stuff free and you know, so there's a lot there's a lot of stuff worth worthwhile on there, but there will be a show every week. So, mm -hmm. um and don't forget uh those and I know people are starting to do it uh, again which because I kept forgetting to remind people. Uh but use that that um that discount code if you're shopping for anything online. All you got to do is put it in podcast as a promo code when you're checking out. You get automatic 10% off whatever you buy. Beautiful. Events, books, whatever the hell, just anything. Uh you got it. Yeah. So I use it every time I buy something from Troy cuz I'm fucking like <laughs> liar. So uh, also, you can leave us. Um, you can rate us on Spotify. Oh, now, really? Which is cool. Oh. We have a lot of ratings, but yeah, yeah if you listen cool. there, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a oh, new well, thing they rolled cool. out. Very cool. Um, no comments, but you know, just ratings. So yeah, if that's cool. your thing. Do okay. that. All right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and painstakingly edited by <laughs> me. <laughs> it was so long. <laughs> Music for this season. It was like an hour. I know. And I sent that I file thirty-two I had pages. Load, I had to load that thing up to. Um, to the Google Drive, and I just left. I went and had lunch. <laughs> I mean, it was it was took forever oh, it to load it. Took so. three hours for the audio file to upload to that transcription. Did it really? Yeah. Three hours. Yeah. I just kept God. looking, and yeah. Oh. Uh, okay. And I don't even know if I'm going to use it for that, but I wanted to test it. Yeah, I didn't know what you were using that for. Uh, music. Oh, it's kind of fun. This. Okay. Music for the seasons performed by well, Packy Lundholm. Can't explain it now, but. And so, okay. Oh, are you trying to finish you, this? The way I'm, you do it. I'm just kidding. Is you upload an audio file, it transcribes it, and then if you yeah, erase. Well, because if you erase part of the transcription, it cuts it out of the audio file. So I'm basically oh, editing, shit, no a, I'm editing a word document that's then editing. Yeah, but an boy, audio I don't know, file. man. That's taking a chance. I don't. I know. I'd have to re-listen oh, okay. to the whole thing. Yeah, but I just wanted to see chance. if it would actually work. Oh, or not. interesting. Um, okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah. What that did. Yeah. I just kept wondering, why do you need a track? I, <laughs> I, I want, wrote a script. Why do you need it? As I want the unclean one that's yeah. messed up. Okay. Uh, check out Packy on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Facebook. You can find us on most of those places too. 
Plus, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, or least favorite podcast, whatever. You can find the website at AmericanHauntsPodcast.com for more Which, info about the show. Which, by the way, looks really nice. Thank you. Cody I, I just did a it. big update on the website. Thank it you. It does look cool. And I know not everybody listens that. Most people don't listen that way, but I know yeah. there are there are people who do. There are. And uh, but it's nice to have a podcast. You need a website. You gotta. Uh, but yeah, you did a great job on it. It looks great. Thank you. So Yeah, well, thank you, and thanks for listening. We couldn't and probably definitely wouldn't do it without yeah, you. No, so until true. next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. Ugh. Awesome. That was good. Well, that went, that went, that went smooth. Yeah. So it's going to be a long episode. <laughs>